Tom Chicks. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast, where we talk to the people who make the forum what it is about the games that matter to them. Today, we have with us Jonathan Strange, not his real name. We should be calling him Kevin today. Jonathan, I assume you could sort of parse why that song is playing. Oh, yeah. Uh, who is Peter Gabriel? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I, I, sometimes it's like it's kind of the low-hanging fruit of the choice of song for, you know, a system shock discussion. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. We, well, it, if we were talking about system shock, too, it would be perfect, right? Because there are monkeys. Oh, and I see when you mentioned yeah. system shock, I was thinking like the franchise in general. Uh, oh, well, uh, and I'm actually thinking about the first system shock. So, uh, you know. We can go the, the, uh, through all of them if you like. All right. Well, well, we'll see where that goes. But before we go into that, I want to talk a little bit about you. You are named after Scarecrow from Batman. Did I get that right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I had no idea about that, I think, until I played Arkham Asylum. Or, although, was his name Jonathan Strange in that first Batman? Oh, no. Uh, you know, there is. I think there's a. Uh, you, you know, there are going to be people on the forum who are going to know exactly. Uh, who Jonathan Strange is, I think that's a different guy. I think Jonathan Crane is who you're thinking of. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> is there a Jonathan Crane on our forum, by the way? No, wait. You're uh, yeah, Jonathan that's, Str- yeah, wait, that's, that's me, actually. Strange and Crane. No, no. So you're Jonathan Crane. Crane. And I don't know if there is a Jonathan Strange. Or, no, is it maybe Adam Strange? Oh, my God. Oh, there's a Doctor Strange, Strange. isn't there? Ah, uh, yes, there is a Doctor Strange. Okay. Master of the Mystic something or other. This is great. This is a couple. I don't know about you. I'm not much of a comic book guy, and I feel like I'm really out of my element, and I'm, I'm flailing wildly. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I, I do like some of them. Uh, there's, there's some great stuff, but I just don't know um, enough about uh, kind of the classics uh, in terms of, you know, a lot of the, the, the kind of older heroes like uh what's his name mike mignola does uh gosh i'm sure i butchered his name but uh does hellboy which i think is just wonderful um but anyway so you're you're a part-time comic book dork but the the thing i'd rather that i want to ask you about before we recorded you mentioned that you had changed your username a while ago because you are uh is it a therapist or a psychiatrist no no i'm actually a psychiatrist okay explain the difference for for those of us in the cheap seats Sure. Uh, well, you know, the classic split is sort of psychologist, psychiatrist. So a psychologist has a PhD or uh, a, another degree called a PsyD, a, a psychology uh, doctorate, uh, and they do, um, you know, it's a study of, of the mind, study of psychology, but they don't have uh, medical training. Uh, a psychiatrist is somebody who has an MD and then goes on to do a residency in psychiatry. So they are trained both in therapy as well as in uh, treatment in terms of medications or ECT or that kind of stuff. And can you tell us a bit about what kind, what is your practice like? You're in Maine, correct? Yeah, I'm in Maine. Uh, I'm in a pretty rural um, place. I'm uh, practicing. I have a, um, a National Health Service Corps scholarship. So uh, the feds were kind enough to pay for medical school, uh, which uh, I'm very grateful for. And I'm returning the favor by uh, serving in a very underserved area where I'm, uh, and I'm not making this up, I am uh, the only psychiatrist in about 50 miles in just about every direction. Wow. And what kind of people do you see, if I may ask? Like, what, what do you deal with in your day-to-day job? 
Well, I guess about a third of it is uh, substance abuse. We do uh, some opiate replacement therapy, which is uh, a medication called Suboxone, which is uh, buprenorphine. For, this is for folks who have dependence on uh, mostly pills, actually, uh, you know, opiates like Oxycontin, Oxycodone. Um, and then about, uh, I've got a little sliver of my practice is adolescence, and then most of it is kind of, uh, the rest is just general adult psychiatry. So, you know, folks with uh, schizophrenia or depression, bipolar disorder, that kind of stuff. And do you tend to travel around a lot in that area, or do you have a I, central office that folks come see? I do not. Uh, you know, there are some folks who kind of do kind of a flying doctor thing where, you know, Monday they're in one city, Tuesday they're in another. I have a, a one office Monday through Friday that I, I practice in uh, as part of, like, a community mental health center. So we have uh, psychologists there. We have social workers and uh, community support workers. So it's kind of a sort of a team approach. Mm-hmm. Now, you're not from there. You moved there. Was it because of this scholarship? Did they put you there? Or you got this scholarship, you, you got uh, not certified, or, or you, you went through school, and then you moved to Maine of your own accord? How did that happen? Uh, yeah, it's kind of an interesting system. What they do is uh, you sign up in uh, medical school for, uh, you know, a flip usually a four-year commitment. And then after medical school, you do your residency, which I did in Boston. And then after that, you have to uh, apply for jobs like everybody else does. Uh, but the jobs you can apply to have to be in areas that the federal government has kind of uh, certified as a mental health uh, professional shortage area. And as you can imagine, there's a whole bureaucracy around that, and it has to meet certain criteria. Um, interestingly, about half of them are in... Uh, uh, half of the available spots are in uh, prison for prison psychiatry, ah. and I and I think I only saw about half an episode of Oz, but it was enough <laughs> to point me that uh, that's I don't know that I'm cut out for that. Um, and so um, my wife and I actually got married in Maine, uh, and uh, we've always uh, liked the state and, and thought living up here would be kind of a nice change because I was in uh, Philadelphia for medical school and then uh, did. Uh, my residency in Boston, and so we've been in large cities for most of our adult lives and thought it would be fun to be out in the, out in the countryside. And has that borne out? It's been uh, good and bad. You know, it's, it's lovely. Uh, you know, I've got a couple acres, and I look out on my back uh, porch, and, you know, there's this beautiful sky and the lovely trees, and, you know, we'll uh, occasionally see a fox in the, the backyard, which is just great because uh, I'm a very city person. Uh, the downside is I have to drive two hours if I want to get uh, Thai food, which uh, is a little <laughs> limiting. Uh, on the other hand, Amazon, man, is, has been a lifesaver out here because, you know, just about anything you can think of, they'll, they'll ship to you. So that's, that's been lovely. What is your internet connection like? Are you on a 2400 baud? Yeah. Oh, God, you would think. Uh, it, when we moved, uh, that was actually one of our criteria for finding a house was specifically, you know, it has to be on the grid. And uh, the previous owners had, uh, they ran like a little website uh kind of home furnishings business, and uh, they had uh, installed a fractional T1 in the basement, uh, and so it had a, had a deal with a local provider. We're just on DSL, which is perfectly fine. The box is still down there, and if I was more technical, I could probably <laughs> do something with it, but uh, uh, we did have to, uh, we really uh, looked specifically, because there were more, there were some houses that were just in these beautiful, idyllic locations, you know, looking over a lake or on the side of a mountain, and, you know, you... 2400 baht is about where you're at. <laughs> and I, I, go ahead. I don't know if, you, uh, if you've ever been through this kind of situation, but when we moved, it was about three weeks, four weeks before uh, they could hook up our uh, DSL connection. And uh, 
you know, it was like a part of my brain went dark. I don't realize how much I use the Internet until suddenly it's not available, and uh, I can't look anything up, and it was it was really kind of paralyzing. Yeah, I, that's tough. I, I ended up negotiating with, because, uh, you know, there are not a lot of big uh, kind of Walmart sort of store. We have a Walmart nearby, uh, and, you know, there's maybe a Home Depot maybe 40 miles away. Uh, and I went looking to try to find an old dial-up modem. And I used to have, you know, I don't know, a box of old computer parts with, like, a 2400-baud modem and all this stuff in there. And I'd gotten rid of it before we moved, thinking, oh, I'm never, ever going to need dial-up. And sure enough, I ended up talking to a guy in an office supply store who went in the back, and he had to dust off this old box, and it was like, you know, not quite steam-powered, but it was this old modem, and the guy wouldn't cut me a discount on it. It was like, he's never going to sell this thing, and he still got me for 60 bucks, which wow. I, guess, I guess proves that I'm not very good at Yankee uh, dickering, you know. He, <laughs> he, he, he knew I was desperate, I think, when, I, when he saw me walk in. So Yeah, that's one thing, Kevin. I know better. That I, I've got a bunch of computer junk that's outdated that I... I routinely throw stuff out, but I know better than to get rid of that old dial-up modem I have in the closet in there. I've, I've been without, I've been in DSL outages for whatever reason at various times, and I've had to, you know, just suck it up and pull out that modem uh, and listen to that sound again of the thing connecting. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so never, everyone listening, don't throw away your modems. You will regret it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, and I... I yeah, please. Well, you, you mentioned you got married in Maine before you moved up there. Now, was it just because you were living in Boston or wherever, and Maine is this idyllic place to go for weddings? Well, uh, we met in Philadelphia, uh, my wife and I, and uh, decided to get married, but we were both not particularly interested in the kind of traditional um, wedding kind of thing. So we decided we were going to elope, but uh, we kind of got it wrong. We told our parents about it ahead of time. And, uh, yeah, I don't think that counts as eloping. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. So uh, uh, my wife's sister was doing a, uh, I think she was in graduate school at that point, and she was doing a uh, like a photography project looking at female uh, lobster boat workers and, and, a, and a particular, I think, one who was a captain on a, a lobster boat uh, in uh, Stonington, uh, Maine. And uh, she was living up there, and uh, I think somehow, maybe it was my wife's idea, or maybe I, her sister suggested, but we thought, oh, this is a perfect place. We'll go up there. You know, uh, nobody knows us, and we're, we'll, we'll get married at the Justice of the Peace, and, you know, we'll just have a little honeymoon and, and, and come back. Because we were both uh, poor like church mice at that point, and uh, it seemed like a nice, uh, a nice way to, uh, to get married. Um, the, the lady who performed the, the wedding ceremony was, in fact, the Justice of the Peace. She was also, like, the town clerk and the local Lobster Fishermen's Association lobbyist, and she had, like, eight other jobs in the town. It was... Um <laughs> it was pretty small, but it was great. Uh, and then we took a ride on a mailboat uh, that goes out to some of the little islands out there. And uh, thinking we were perfectly anonymous and, and maybe not getting how news travels in a very small town. Uh, but we're just sitting on the boat kind of looking out and watching the water go by. And it was just beautiful. And then the captain comes up and says something like, so, here you just got married. <laughs> uh, you know, and this has been like 45 minutes ago. I, it was it was amazing uh, how quickly that uh, <laughs> that stuff travels. But it was lovely. And I guess that started our connection with Maine, and we've come up a few times since and, and really loved it. So uh, when we were uh, looking, and you know, my, my wife put up with uh, me throughout medical school and residency, so she totally had veto privileges uh, for the decision of where we were going to, to go, and we thought uh, Maine would make sense uh, and uh, would be beautiful, which, uh, which it has been. Oh, our families are also on the East Coast, so uh, I think that uh, 
was helpful. We were looking at some places in California and uh, sort of in the, the northwest, uh, including Alaska, though, uh, I got to tell you, when the guy told me that, uh, you know, you come with your luggage and then your furniture arrives, you know, in a month to six weeks, depending <laughs> on when there's space on the plane, uh, it was sort of like, hmm, that's pretty far. Now, what, uh, is there anything uh, bad about Maine? Oh, I guess you mentioned the, like, not finding Thai food and dealing with the Internet stuff, but just Maine strikes me as this lovely, magical, remote corner of the U.S. And I can't imagine many drawbacks to, to living up there. Uh, do you, do you have like an inept governor or anything like that? Oh. <laughs> I think opinions divided about that. There's definitely folks who would say for sure. Uh, we just had a referendum. Uh, the, the government, uh, the legislature passed like a tax, uh, wasn't a, I guess we could call it a tax reform and they passed it in the fall and then it got re recalled yesterday in a voter referendum. So it's sort of like one step forward, one step back, nothing changed. Um, the, the culture is, is kind of interesting. I mean, there's a very strong sense of kind of local community where um, I am very definitely from away uh, and mm -hmm. will be. You know, if I'm here 30 more years, I'm still going to be from away. Mm -hmm. uh, when we ordered, uh, what did we get? You know, the, uh, we ordered, I think it was, uh, you know, like a heating element or something like this from the local uh, agricultural supply place. And uh, they... They didn't really want the address. They said, "Oh, is that the old Putnam place?" <laughs> oh yeah, that's fine. And the lady writes it down on the on the uh, the slip. You know, uh, you know, the old Putnam place. Uh, and, and like that's all the driver needed. You know. Oh yeah, sure, I know that one. Uh, so uh, I I don't think it's uh, ever going to be uh, referred to as the old Crane place. You know what I mean? <laughs> now, have you ever been ice fishing? I never have. No, uh, and uh, sounds pretty cold though. I guess people take these shacks out onto the ice, which uh, sounds actually kind of neat. Apparently, you've got a little little burner in there, and it, it can be kind of cozy. When I when I was in graduate school in Boston, uh, I remember another fellow there who, uh, who was in school with me. His name, I think, was Andrew. Uh, Andrew was from Maine. And Andrew once invited a couple of us to come back home with him for a long weekend to go ice fishing. And I'm not a fisherman, and I don't, I'm not much of an outdoorsman. I don't fish. I don't hunt. None of that stuff means anything. Don't you have a kind of a phobia about fish? I do. So you heard that thing. Yeah, I, yeah my grandfather know. would try to encourage me to fish when I was a kid, and it would freak me out. But So here I am, all grown up in, in graduate school, thinking I'm going to try fishing again, but, but ice fishing. And not only do I not like fishing, Kevin, I'm not real fond of being in cold weather. So this whole thing was, was just like going to be an adventure for me. So we, we drive up to Maine with Andrew, and uh, I think another one of my buddies from graduate school was there. And, and it's exactly like you say. There's a shack. You, you know, the, the lakes freeze over, and, and, it, and it's beautiful, especially if you're not used to seeing that sort of winter wonderland. In Arkansas, we would get snow a couple of days a year, but nothing comparable to that that beautiful winter wilderness you have in Maine. And, and what amazed me about a frozen lake is that it doesn't look much different from just a huge clearing in the woods, you know, because it's the, the, the lake is frozen over and it's covered with snow and it just looks like, you know, it's just a big open area, but there happens to be a lake under there. And so what you do is that you, you push the little shack out on the lake and uh, where we went with Andrew, the shack was already out there, and you cut a hole in the ice and where we were, there were already holes cut in the ice. And the fishing consists of just setting up a trap <laughs> over these holes that, I guess, dangles bait in the water and has a little flag on it. And when a fish grabs the bait, the flag pops up. So what you do is you set up these traps. 
we were there late at night, and then you go and you sit in the shack, and every now and then someone, and in our case this was Andrew, because I certainly didn't want to leave the little shack where it was warm, Andrew would go out and check the flags to see if a fish had been caught. Uh, and it didn't feel like fishing at all. It felt like just driving to Maine to hang out in this little tiny shack with a, with a wood-burning stove in it. Uh, but the, the thing I remember, and I don't know if you've heard this, uh, is a frozen lake makes these really cool kind of eerie sounds late at night. Oh, yeah, kind of like a groaning, creaking kind yes. of... Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, and so I remember... There is, your, there is your low-budget Tom Chick Blair witch feature, right? <laughs> out there in the ice shack, and, like, you send Andy out, and he doesn't come back. Aha! Uh-huh. What are we going to do, you know? And, oh, all right, right because we're like the fish-out-of-water protagonists who don't know... Right, exactly. You know, the locals know. Right. Don't go out there at night and... You know, <laughs> Stay off the frozen lakes at night. Uh. <laughs> Here's how much I was out of my element. So I, I had these, these nice warm boots that I, you know, because I lived in Boston, and I would get around on my bicycle. So I had some nice snow boots. Uh, and we're in this shack, and, I, you know, I've got my boots on because it's cold. You don't take your boots off. And we're, the shacks are tiny. And I remember leaning back on the wall and having my feet up. And at one point, it smelled like something was burning, uh, <laughs> some some kind of like rubber burning. It reminded me of when I was a kid, and I would burn my model airplanes <laughs> in that melty smell. <laughs> and I remember asking the guys, "What what is that? What is burning?" And it was the bottom of my boots, which were propped up on the on the, the up. <laughs> you don't really want to put your shoes up there. And and for the rest of the time I owned those boots, they had these deep grooves melted into them where I had them resting on the the oven there. Uh, so, but that was that was my memory of Maine, and I loved it. I loved the sound that the lakes made. I just loved the look of that, uh, the fishing. I don't even remember if we caught anything. Uh, do you ever hear? You mentioned foxes. Do you ever hear the noises foxes make? Well, I'm guessing uh, we probably do sometimes, but because we sometimes get some pretty weird sounds outside, and I'm sure the locals know exactly what that is, but for me, as mostly kind of a city boy, I'm sort of like, what is that? And then, do I want to go out there and see what that is? And <laughs> usually the answer is no. Uh, the New York Times had an article about guys who live in New York City who get, like, these houses in rural Connecticut and are absolutely terrified uh, when they get out there because, you know, it's just too quiet. You know, something is clearly wrong. And, uh, you know, one guy was uh, was talking about, like, he'd set up this, uh, you know, the, these floodlights that would go on with motion detectors. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, oh, yeah, that's me. I, I, that's how I'll handle this. Um, my only concession, I have not set up motion detectors. I do have one of those really bright kind of sun gun kind Kind of things, and if what I have that? to go out, like a spotlight. I, yeah, it's like a handheld spotlight that you know it charges up over a 12-hour period and discharges in like 10 minutes. It's ridiculously bright. Uh, and so my thought is, you know, if I ever have to go out there and you know in the middle of a snowstorm, you know, um, then I'll I'll have the sun gun with me, and that way it'll be it'll be okay. Um, now, did you, you buy know, that because you played Alan Wake? You know, I didn't, but I was just now thinking about that. You know, th- they really missed out because, I mean, I don't want to uh, spoil the weapon things, but you, you never get a big sun gun kind of thing, like a handheld kind of, you know, you get a variety of flashlights, but you never quite upgrade to this thing. And it's, I mean, I have to tell you, it's pretty cool because you can shine this thing and it goes out, you know, really a couple hundred yards and you can, you know, get out to the tree line and, you know, we'll we'll get, uh, we have some apple trees on our property and we'll so we'll get the year that'll come out and eat the apples and, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty neat to just kind of watch all this uh, stuff kind of happening outside your back, uh, your back porch. Uh, except unlike when I was living in Philadelphia, when I looked out outside my back porch and was like, hey, what's that guy? Hey, I yeah. think there's somebody smoking crack in our backyard. 
<laughs> By the way, I'm going to use your sun gun in my uh, Tom Chick Goes Fishing in Maine horror script. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. You know, get it as an Alan Wake tie-in, maybe. It'll show up as one of those little black-and-white features, you know. Well, now, you uh, mentioned, and I, I totally agree with this, and I even made made a comment about it. Alan Wake, it's funny, it, it was created by Finns, and they have their own concept of, of winter wilderness uh, wonderlands. But, but Alan Wake, it's, it's not real clear whether or not it's like Maine or the Pacific Northwest. I, I mean, it could go either way, because Stephen King's whole thing is Maine. And well, that's the thing. Yeah, Stephen King's not so far from where we are, and I, I'm going to have to go back because I, I like. I think it's going to resonate a lot more with me. You know, these little little roads late at night. Uh, you know, a couple people in the diner, and that's kind of it. Yeah, Because uh, yeah. uh, Edge magazine, you know, in their uh, review of Alan Wake, they were convinced it was Maine. Uh, admittedly, <laughs> you know, they're Brits, so what do they know? But. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, I'm sure I couldn't tell you, you know, oh, of course, you know, that's uh, slow or that's, uh, you know, the Midlands. I, you know, my, my English geography is horrible, so I really shouldn't throw stones. Uh, but, yeah, they were convinced it was Maine. And then that uh, there's kind of an opening sequence where you kind of get introduced to the town. And, uh, you know, as you're coming in, I was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, there's some lobster boats and, uh, you know, some fishing stuff. And just this looks like a, a small Maine coastal town. Uh, until, of course, you look up and you see the mountains towering over everything. And you're like, oh, well, wait a minute. Maybe not. So Maine doesn't have, like, mountains. You can't go skiing in Maine. Oh, well, you can, actually. You know, uh, there's Mount Katahdin, which is, is lovely. And as you know from being in Boston, you don't see very many kind of hills around there or even anything close to a mountain. And then you're driving on I-95, and there's this huge thing looming up that's actually still like 60 or 80 miles away. And it's, uh, it, you know, the sad thing is it looks like a matte painting. Uh, fake <laughs> kind of yeah and it's really sad because like it's a completely real thing and yet it doesn't look real because i've been conditioned to the, by the movies you know to to think of it uh in that way now what may i ask does your wife do uh she is a uh graphics designer and a painter and uh though right now she's uh got uh, about two full-time jobs looking after uh our kids who are uh five and one uh so that's most of what she's doing right now. But uh, as soon as our one-year-old gets a little more independent, she's going back to painting. So, uh, uh, so uh, boys, girls, one of each? Girls. No, girls, both girls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, congratulations, by the way, on the one-year-old. Uh, oh, yeah, it's great. You know, at some point I'm convinced she's going to be sleeping through the night, and that'll be kind of a lovely thing, but uh, not so much as yet. Now, uh, what does the five... I guess the five-year-old has grown up in Maine, right? Will she be a Mainer? Yeah, I see. I don't know that she will. Maybe if people don't know that she came here when she was, like, three. But uh, she, might, she might be able to not be from away, because she, she's going to start kindergarten in the fall, and she might. Does the five-year-old... Uh, see you playing any games? Are there any video yeah, game things that no. you do? Uh, oh, you know, we, we do one thing, which is the, um, you know, the Boston Museum of Science, you probably stuck your head over there when you were uh, in Boston, has this great virtual fish tank kind of thing. You know, it's, uh, uh, you can kind of design your own fish, and uh, it's sort of supposed to teach you, I think, about, you know, uh, schooling behavior and predator behavior. Uh, but the cool thing is, I mean, you, you adjust all these variables on the fish and they get different faces and they look different and it, it's pretty neat. There's a, a electronic version. The guys who made it have like a little, uh, I think it's like a shockwave or a flash uh, kind of version that we've played a little bit. But I've been really cautious about introducing her to, uh, to video games and even television actually. Uh, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a, um, a guideline where they suggest no television before age two. None whatsoever. And um, 
you'll see that uh, that's not usually how people handle things uh, in North America. Uh, and it's a, if you want to get, get the mothers of Brookline, Massachusetts fighting in the playground, all you have to do is bring up, uh, you know, well, I don't let my little precious daughter watch television. <laughs> and people, I mean, it, it, it's enraging. And, you know, I don't talk about this stuff to, to, to tick anything off. So anybody listening who's letting their kid watch TV before age of two, you are a great parent. I'm sure you love your children very much. Um, and I'm not saying this of, uh, you know, we're, we're such, uh, you know, great people at all. But, uh, you know, the data is actually uh, pretty persuasive when I last looked at it, that there, uh, y- you do see some improvements in attention span. And there's a one really interesting study that looked at the rate of autism connected to um, the introduction to cable television in western Pennsylvania, like in the mid-1980s. And they got cable TV, uh, and within a year or two, they started to see an autism spike. Now, as we all know, correlation does not imply causation, but it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, so it's been kind of a challenge because it's something that I love, and I think, you know, when she's around eight or so, uh, we'll probably start playing some games together. And we are doing, uh, like, one or two nights a week, we'll do TV night. And so we're mostly watching uh, The Muppet Show on, uh, on DVD, you know. Uh, but we don't, we don't have cable. We don't have a, a, a satellite dish. Uh, we just kind of get our media through Netflix and uh, you know, uh, you know, well, Netflix streaming, and then also the discs. Uh, now, is she ever around other kids her age who talk a lot about TV? Like, does that make it difficult to, to regulate it? Not yet. You know, when we were back in Brookline, uh, uh, which is uh, you know a suburb out just outside of Boston, and uh, you know it's a pretty eclectic community, and so pe- you know a lot of people, uh, you know, it's sort of this uh, very liberal kind of uh, environment. Everybody's got kind of strong opinions and uh, about this kind of stuff, and I-, I don't think her peers got a lot of TV either. Uh, you know, some of them did, but I don't think it was something they they really talked about. We're going to see what happens when she starts kindergarten in the fall. Cause I was going to say, yeah, years. exactly. Yeah, I'm sure most of them are, are watching TV, so we'll see if uh, we start to get nagged about uh, Dora the Explorer and, yep. and all the other things, uh, which on some level I think is okay in, in smaller doses, but I, I just think we have such a toxic environment in terms of images of women and, and kind of marketing stuff to kids. It's gotten so much more sophisticated. I think you and I are within a, a year or two of age, and I, I think that environment has really changed um, since we were growing up. And, of course, also get off my lawn, uh, you know, <laughs> clearly old man talking here. Uh, but uh, it, it's interesting because a lot of the, the stuff I, I can barely recognize when I watch on TV. I mean, it's such a fast-paced visual environment, and uh, I, I don't know specifically what impact that's got. I, I can't quote you any data on it, but I just think it's, it may have some impact. And uh, she seems really happy. She doesn't seem to experience any deprivation. I mean, she's out playing in the yard all the time and, uh, you know, uh, knows more about dinosaurs probably than I ever will. Uh, is she doing a dinosaur phase? Is that where she is? Oh, good Lord, yes. And, you know, were you into dinosaurs when you were growing up? You know, not to the degree that I was somewhat, but not to the degree that it sounds like kids these days. I have a friend, Christian, who's got a, a son the same age as your daughter, and his son went through a huge dinosaur phase. And I was going to give you some guff about your daughter being a girl and being into dinosaurs, but I think dinosaurs just, I guess they get their moment in the spotlight for all kids these days, for whatever reason. Yeah, I wonder actually whether it engages like that, uh, you know, 
that Pokemon kind of thing of wanting to know like a whole taxonomy, know how like this ah. one relates to that one, and you know they all have these different shapes, and you know some are plant eaters, some are meat eaters, and I, I guess where I was going with this is that uh, dinosaurs have just gotten much more complicated. Like I think I, I remember <laughs> dinosaurs, and I knew like six of them, maybe maybe eight. You know, I mean there was you know you got your Stegosaurus, your Tyrannosaurus, and a couple others, and uh, now it's like you know uh, Camarasaurus and uh, Argentinosaurus, and like there's like hundreds of these things and all of which uh, you know Styracosaurus and Miranda's correct my daughter's name's Miranda and she's correcting me if uh, you know no daddy that's protoceratops that's not triceratops and I'm like whoa okay uh, now, did you know that apparently uh, I think one of the dinosaurs got canceled my, my friend Christian's son explained to me is it maybe a brontosaurus there's some oh, dinosaur yeah. that we knew and they canceled it like pluto they, they sort of yeah. cut it out <laughs> you got it right brontosaurus you know i remember brontosaurus you know he was a friend of mine we we, we, we spent a lot of quality time when i was a kid and now he never happened it's he's a patasaurus now uh but again it's like this pokemon thing you know which i'm I don't know much about. I've not played the games, uh, you know, but people are really into them and clearly love them. And it, there's that same kind of complicated taxonomy where all the, you know, certain ones will mutate into other ones. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder if that kind of takes over maybe when the dinosaur phase ends and it hits that same kind of, like it's a masterable body of knowledge. It's something that they can know a lot about and, uh, you know, just really just absorb so much information. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know. It's... Uh, the dinosaur face thing, I, it just fascinates me because she'll just get these books and just be kind of, you know, reading them and, and just, you know, she's lost in it. Uh, That's wonderful, Kevin. The whole Pokemon analogy, I think, is, is probably dead on. And uh, I, I wonder if it's just part of appealing to kids' desire to, to sort of uh, organize and process and, and make sense of, of the world. You know, taxonomy, that's just a great way to put it. I never thought, yeah, that's, that's why Pokemon is so big. Uh, yeah, well put. Yeah, so... Uh, but she's she's doing great, and uh, you know I have to say, uh, uh, remember you uh, were interviewing uh, Jupiter Jones uh, a while back, and he was talking about uh, losing a lot of gaming time as a parent, and it's sort of like, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I know what he's going through there, um, it, which is too bad because you know in my twenties, I mean, I think I was playing just about everything I could get my hands on, and now you know I really have to kind of pick and choose my battles, which is kind of tough. Uh, for me as a gamer in the sense that, uh, like, I often would really like kind of the somewhat weird stuff, and uh, now I don't have time to play, like, five things, one, all of which are kind of weird and a little obscure, because one of them is going to be good, because I just, I, you know, I don't have to, I don't have the time. Yeah, I know. You have to choose between, do I go for the cool, obscure stuff that might not work for me, or do I go for the sure thing that's going to be this sort of cultural force, you know? Do I play Modern Warfare 2, or do I play No More Heroes? You, you know, that's got to be a tough choice. It's Exactly. And, you know, uh, with quarter to three, it's always the challenge of, uh, you know, I try to stay ahead of spoilers on the, the most recent stuff. But, man, people just play stuff when it comes out. And, like, something comes out on a Tuesday and, and people yeah. have finished it by Wednesday <laughs> afternoon. And I'm like, man, I, I, I remember those undergraduate days. And I, uh, I, I, I admire it. I, I, I'm a little nostalgic for it. Well, um, I got to say, if there were, you know, when we were kids and I was a huge gamer as well, I can't imagine someone balancing the you know the work it takes to get through school and just the the constant barrage of good video games i mean you know i don't there there clearly weren't this many releases when we were younger and I, that just would have probably shattered any attempt i had to get through school i i, I just i don't envy kids having to deal with that these days 
No, not at all. And I agree with you. I think that the environment's really changed, both in terms of the volume of releases, but also in terms of, uh, you know, the nature of them. Because uh, you and I uh, grew up uh, before, really, the MMORPGs. I mean, maybe some MUDs in college when you were uh, coming up. I don't know if that was something you were into. Uh, You know, these uh, multi-user domains, which are kind of the, you know, the text adventure version of, you know, World of Warcraft. And, and in fact, I think uh, a lot of them draw on some of that basic structure in terms of, like, mobile objects, and and a lot of the language gets uh, pulled from it. I had... my, my journey to being a psychiatrist is kind of complicated. Uh, but in the, the middle of it, after undergrad, I went out uh, to California to work on a documentary film degree. And one of the cool things that uh, Stanford does is they let graduate students, and I think almost anybody uh, in the academic community, kind of propose a class. And, and uh, it goes in front of an accreditation committee, and then you can you know, propose it as an elective, which uh, the undergraduates can take just kind of pass-fail. And I did a class on uh, cyberspace, and this was, oh, I don't know, like 1990, uh, 1991, something like that. And so it was still all very new, and we were looking, you know, at... I'm a little embarrassed thinking back on it. You know, I had them read Michel Foucault, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we were reading some stuff from Discipline and Punish where he talks about the panopticon and this idea of being kind of constantly under surveillance and uh, this idea that you can have uh, a prison laid out in such a way that the prisoners could always be observed, but you as a prisoner never know when you're being watched. So on some level, you always, uh, you know, you kind of internalize your jailer. And uh, uh, he has a long paragraph, not paragraph, my God, the man writes and writes, uh, he has a huge section on this, uh, and you know we were drawing parallels in the class between that and um, you know the surveillance that can happen uh, on the uh, you know on the internet, and you know at that time it was all on the Usenet, uh, which was where most of the conversations were were taking place. Uh, one of my students, uh, one of the things we had them, uh, the, the, my students did was. Uh, uh, to log into a MUD, uh, a multi-user dungeon, or uh, and uh, and play as a character of a different gender. So uh, you know, the female <laughs> students would log on as a male, the male students, and you know, uh, I, I realize that there's probably 20 million World of Warcraft players who do this every day, but at the time it seemed very kind of new and transgressive. You know, mm-hmm. what's it like being the other gender online? And uh, one kid came to me kind of halfway through the semester and, and said, you know, I'm really struggling because I am just stuck playing this thing, and I am really, like, it's taken up hours and hours and hours of my day. And this is, if you remember these, they were, it's a purely a text interface. And, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the old Zork games in the sense of, you know, go north. Um, there is a mailbox here. Open the mailbox. You know, uh, the orc swings its sword. It does five points of damage. I mean, this is not a uh, tremendously absorbing audiovisual kind of feast. And yet, uh, some people really get drawn into this um, treadmill of just trying to get uh, leveling up and just falling through the looking glass, trying to... Uh, make sense of all this stuff and it really hits some kind of reward loop that people uh, and I think some people are more vulnerable to this than others but uh, you know people really this kid was uh, you know he eventually stopped playing it and I I think he did okay but I I felt horrible because you know this is just a pass-fail elective with a lot of very bright Stanford undergraduates who are the ideal teaching audience because uh, you know uh, I'd not taught any classes before and and, uh, you know I'm up there and I'm kind of lecturing and uh, we're talking back and forth and you throw something out and and they just run with it you know they uh, they just were were wonderful students and 
you know, to, to think that to some kids, you know, I, I kind of got them hooked on a mud, and I felt really nice. bad about it. Nice. I, I know. Um, <laughs> By the way, huge props for uh, pronouncing Michael Foucault's name correctly. <laughs> uh, I, I got to say, though, Kevin, you're right. And, and what you're talking about drives so much of contemporary game design. You can take a game that would otherwise be unspectacular and give it a leveling system, and suddenly that otherwise unspectacular game is going to hook people, you know, without any inherent gameplay benefit. And I'm thinking specifically of a couple of things I've been playing lately that I'm not even super fond of. Uh, there have been a few racing games out, and there's one of them called Blur, which is kind of mediocre, but it, it, you, it, it's got that leveling system. Uh, I think of Lost Planet 2, which is this weird shooter that has some some problems, but it's got a leveling system where you're constantly unlocking things and earning things. And in the old days, Lost Planet 2 would just be a shooter that you play through and you see the adventure or whatever, and, and you're done with it. But now, you know, Capcom wants you to play through little bits and pieces over and over again to earn the bits that you spend to get new weapons and to level up your dude and see new costumes. And uh, this whole leveling concept just just permeates game design uh, and it's hugely powerful and i'm i'm a sucker for it and i hate that uh, yeah I, I, I you see it in a way that I, I just don't think was present 20 years ago and maybe you know it's one of the areas in which we've kind of uh learned or, or made progress in terms of design if you want to look at it that way i think jonathan blow had a um Boy, and I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. Uh, had a, a, a lecture that he did on, uh, you know, the consequences of MMORPG design, and that if you design your game to get people uh, hooked as much as possible, you are on some level responsible if they spend 85 hours a week. Um, you know, playing your game to the detriment of all else, because you're making, um, and I don't know if I'm uh, mischaracterizing his argument, but you're you're creating a system with this really powerful intermittent reinforcement. You know, if uh, you know they did this research on, I think, like rats and pigeons. You know, if, if the rat presses the bar in the cage, it gets a pellet, right? right. Uh, and eventually, the rat's full, and it's not going to want any more pellets. But if you make it so that if it has to press the bar four times, it learns it can only have to press it four times, and then it gets a, a pellet. But if you make it some random number, like sometimes it's one push, one sometimes it's 20 pushes, oh, boy, then you're talking, I mean, right to the amygdala. You are, you know, that rat is hooked on this. And so you see that same kind of intermittent reinforcement stuff in terms of drop rates um, from, you know, you kill, you know, I don't know, Gothmog the Mighty, uh, you know, and one out of every 20 times he drops the, the sword of swordiness, you know, and uh, and you, you're just kind of stuck there. And that that is really, I think... Um, it can be really tough for people to kind of say no to that. Wow, Kevin, so in Lost Planet 2, what you do is as you're playing, every now and then you see a, a little uh, a box, and you pick up the box, and at the end of the level, it gives you a certain number of credits. And then those credits you take to something that is literally called a slot machine, and you spend those credits to spin the slot machine, and most of the time you're just going to get a stupid uh, title that you can put over your name in multiplayer games, and it does nothing. Uh, sometimes you'll get just a little animation emote. But sometimes you get a new weapon or a new special perk that you can slot in your character. And, and it's totally what you're talking about. If you just get something free every time you level up or every time you, you push the button, that's one thing. But if you have to randomly play a slot machine that's full of meaningless crap, it's just that much more compelling. <laughs> I feel like such a sucker now. 
I'm, well, it, 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 I am convinced if this stuff existed when I was an undergraduate, uh, you know, I, I would have, <laughs> I would have been on the six-year plan, and then, some, <laughs> uh, you know, because I, I now I have stayed away from the MMORPGs specifically because the, this is just this huge time sink. You know, I played around a little bit with the muds, never got uh, completely hooked on them, uh, and uh, then realized that you know that this is an infinite sink, and I would be just drawn in. It's uh, my wife won't, uh, she will not have civilization installed on any computer she she uses you mean because uh, she'll play it yeah oh <laughs> yeah. good for her um, <laughs> well you know and this is something i was curious about uh, asking you about is uh you know do you consciously think about if you're starting or have started kind of a new romantic relationship do you consciously think about how you're going to reveal to somebody you know what in your case what you do for a living but that you know you play video games because I think that can be kind of a delicate moment and uh, I, I was kind of curious do you, do you give it any thought or is I, I have to fess up pretty quickly I mean it comes out you know the whole what do you do for a living I can only get away with saying I'm a writer for so long before they ask you know what do you write about uh, so it, it becomes clear pretty quickly in any new relationship that, that yeah, I'm t- a total dork uh, who plays video games. Now, now the, the, the out for me is that I can claim, and this is mostly true, that I do it because it's what I do for a living. Um, but, yeah, for, for me, that always comes, comes up pretty quickly. And the funny thing is, Kevin, over the course of the last, I don't know, 15 years or whatever, how the reactions from that used to be, this sort of furrowed brow and this like, well, aren't you a little old for that? And isn't that for kids to nowadays when I tell someone that it's, it's, it's like, Oh yeah, of course you write about video games. I know about them. My brother plays, you know, my adult brother plays them or I dabble in them. And just the, the range of reactions to that has, has changed so dramatically in the last 10 years. Um, yeah, oh, absolutely. And you know, on some level, uh, you know, Gary Gygax really has uh, just, you know, by, Doing D and D, and then that evolving into the kind of the the skeleton that are all RPGs kind of grew on, and then blossomed, I guess, if you will, into kind of World of Warcraft and, and all that other stuff. You know, uh, so much of our leisure time is mediated by uh, you know hit points uh, in ways that uh, you know I don't think if you <laughs> talked to me 20 years ago and said, well, hey, guess what's coming? Uh, I, I don't think I would have been able uh, to kind of wrap my head around that. And yet here we are, where it's uh, you know games are kind of uh, uh, you know, really are very mainstream in some ways, and yet in other ways still kind of remain their own uh, kind of ghetto, at least in terms of kind of the, I don't want to use the word hardcore maybe, but the kind of specialty kind of hobby gamer, that that part is, uh, I think, still a little bit distinct from the main culture. Right. And if you tell somebody you play Madden, uh, you know, or uh, one of the, even maybe one of the baseball games, yeah, okay, fine, but if you tell them you're playing Demon's Souls, and then that there's a conversation that has to happen there, uh, or there's going to be eye rolling. Um, well, I'm I'm seeing someone right now who, when I when I first met her, uh, she told me that oh yeah, like she heard I did that for for uh, a living. I write about video games, and she said something about oh well, I play video games too. And you hear that a lot, and that normally means you know when I was a kid, I played Miss Pac-Man, or you know I'll, I'll play something on Facebook, or you know I've got a pop cap game installed on a computer at work. But it turns out that she, and she still does this, plays Resistance 2, which is a shooter on the PS3, and it has this uh, 
this multiplayer co-op component where you go online. It's a, it's a bit like Diablo, or it's like Hellgate is trying to be, or Borderlands is another one. She still plays that, and it's got three classes on it, and I think she's maxed out two of them. Uh, wow. But I remember when she said, yeah, I play video games, and I was expecting you know, something like that, and, and upon sort of talking to her about it, discovering that she's harder core than me at Resistance 2. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I never would have run into that in the old days. Uh, yeah, I think it's really changed. Uh, in my vanishingly brief career as a documentary filmmaker, I made a little 16-millimeter black-and-white short about uh, where I was interviewing kids about... Uh, you know, their experience playing video games and kind of what they liked about it, what they got out of it. Uh, you know, these real short little snippets. And I had them kind of interspersed with these uh, images of uh, Street Fighter 2, if you remember. Uh, of course you remember that. Sure. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> I, it was like in the... It, we, I had to film this, you know, in, with this special uh, low... Uh, stock that they had just run out, and I remember I had to kind of uh, uh, put my number in a hat. They were drawing to see who could get the last uh, the last reels. I think it was like Tri-X or something like that was the name of the stock. Uh, it was a stock you could shoot very low light with on the 16 millimeter, and you know I had uh, had to tape like garbage bags over the uh, Street Fighter 2 machine at uh, in the Stanford <laughs> Student Union, and uh, you know was was filming it, and then uh, you know I had those cut in with uh, you know the kids playing the games and kind of what they got out of the games and uh, the reception uh, from my uh, fellow classmates and, and the faculty was sort of like okay this is really interesting but but how did you think about doing this mean video games what are you thinking about uh, and now it's uh, you know such a, a, a mainstream uh, kind of thing it, it, it's very interesting to see how that's all all moved uh, you know getting Tom getting back to uh, my wife I think it was like our second or third date where I kind of you know started to allude to you know well computers computer games right. You know, right. some of that stuff. And, um, you know, I think in my mind I was thinking, well, hopefully she'll tolerate this. Uh, but then we we ended up uh, playing Betrayal at Crondor. Uh, and, you know, we, we created our, our different characters, and we were kind of both playing at the same time, kind of in parallel. And I, I don't know, it's like maybe nine chapters in this game, and I'd gotten to chapter three. And then, you know, she's by this point, she's like, oh, yeah, I finished it. <laughs> what? What happened? Uh, and, and, you know, I thought I'd have to, well, okay, these, these things called hit points. <laughs> she just ran with it. And, uh, you know, she ended up, uh, you know, she played Xenogears and Torment and uh, loves this stuff. Now, uh, where did she, did she like fantasy or where does she get the, the sort of vocabulary to get into that stuff? Uh, she, did, she, did she just take to it or is she a, a, a fan of fantasy stuff or what, where did that come from? I think uh, she had played some D&D with, like, uh, uh -huh. her brother growing uh -huh. up. And, and I think she had never, like, she was a little bit younger than him, and so he wouldn't really let her play when his friends came over to play D&D, you know. And so she was always kind of on the outside looking in. And so uh, now this is basically, you know, D&D &D in the box on the computer. She was like, oh, yeah, I, I got this. Uh, and uh, she really just ran with it. So this is why we can't have civilization on, on any of her computers, because uh, she said she started dreaming in squares. Uh, and uh, we we were living in a really tiny little apartment where you know the computer was in the same room as the bedroom, and um, I, I think the reason we're still together today is because I got some headphones when I started to play Doom uh, when that came out because I, I remember kind of getting a tap on the shoulder and looking at, and she was just glaring at me, you know, because you know I, I didn't play, tend to play that late, but you know the demons are coming out and they're you know everything screaming, and she's just looking at me like. Um, yeah, let's not do this. Uh, 
Now, I want to, I want to, before we talk about uh, the game that, that you want to talk about, I want you to do for me real quick what you did when I said do a mic check before we started recording. Oh, okay. Um, you're listening to WKDU in Philadelphia, free music for an enslaved city, broadcasting from high atop the Van Rensselaer Dormitory. This is the 110-watt flamethrower. And I like how you dropped into your DJ voice. Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I have a DJ voice. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I think everybody does. Uh, Some people just don't know it. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe. Uh, yeah, when I was an undergrad, I, I had a, a radio show at um, the college in, uh, I was going to in Philadelphia, and uh, it was it was fun. I had a, you know, I started off, uh, you know, with this, you know, late night shift, which they, I think they stick all the freshmen with, you know, because who else is going to tolerate being up from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. on a, like a Tuesday night? Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, then it was, it was really kind of fun, and I actually really missed that because at the time, you know, uh, mainstream radio was really a uh, pretty narrow band. You know, Nirvana hadn't yet uh, really happened, and uh, you had uh, all these kind of interesting things happening, but it was mostly... Um, you didn't hear a lot of it on the radio, and so you needed a source. And this is, of course, before Pandora, before Last FM, before right. any of these sources that will now do wonderful jobs of recommending weird and neat stuff that you haven't heard. Uh, and so it was kind of neat because, you know, you would spend a couple hours a week at least, you know, just listening to new releases, and you'd re- hear really cool stuff that you would never, I mean, for me, never in a million years uh, would you hear. And it was just wonderful. And I, I kind of miss that a little bit because I'm still very now uh, out of touch with current stuff. Uh, you know, I'll hear certain things that I'll like, but it's usually because people will uh, throw about it, or someone will mention it on the forums, and uh, again, it's beautiful. You know, I can go to YouTube, or, or they'll, they'll link to the MySpace page of the, the band, and I'll be able to listen to it, and uh, so that's been uh, that's been pretty neat. I'm so um, jealous of, of, like, Trigger Cut. Like, he is so tapped oh, into, wow. like, yeah. music. And I, just that guy, I should just put a, every now and then, I should just search for his posts where he talks about music, and uh, but I love, I, I wish I was like that. That's just kind of so inspiring and simultaneously daunting. Uh, well, right, to have that kind of deep encyclopedic knowledge, but not be kind of fossilized into, I only like bands that had three guitars from 1967 <laughs> to 1974, and if there was any reverb, I'm not interested. Uh, you know, but to be able to constantly be engaged by new stuff in that yeah. way, yeah, I think it's lovely. And, uh, you know, even when it's stuff like I, I click on, I listen to it, I'm like, oh, God, what is this? Uh, I still ref- uh, really respect the enthusiasm and the, the joy that comes through, and uh, I think that stuff is great. Um, well, let's talk about your game of choice. And to start off, why on earth would you pick this game when you are asked what's the game you want to talk about? I well, so we were talking about System Shock, and uh, I was thinking just talking about the first one, uh, which fine. Is the one that's kind of etched in my memory. Though we might talk about, do you have anybody on on deck for say Terra Nova or any of the other uh, kind of looking glass games? Somebody's got to talk about. That. I don't even think anyone picked Thief. Oddly enough, I mean I'd have to look at the list, but yeah, it seems okay, a well, lot, doesn't it? Somebody needs to step up here. I think is what needs to happen. Uh, so uh, Looking Glass uh, Studios was, uh, you know, this the studio that, that was. I think at least half of them were kind of MIT grads uh, in Cambridge uh, who, uh, you know, were developing these very uh, neat kind of. Uh, uh, somewhat offbeat kind of games that they're just tremendously creative in terms of what they were doing. Uh, and System Shock, uh, if you remember, it came out in two releases. One of them, uh, the first one, it was just like on, I don't know, 12 floppy disks, like the little three and a half inch, uh, you know, those little square mm-hmm. things. Uh, and then
then they released it a couple, maybe it was a few months later with a, a CD. And so I bought the floppy disk version and started playing it and realized, oh, wow, I love this. I, I need to get the CD version, even though I think it was, like, more expensive or something. So um, it, it's a game that I think was the first one that really kind of drew me into a completely different environment and and created kind of a real place with sort of real seeming people in it and it it started for me kind of this love of games that will really take you kind of to a different environment and it'll give you that really uh palpable kind of sense of place mm-hmm so I, I guess I'm thinking in terms of, you know, uh, for me, System Shock was the first one, you know, because the text adventures, they didn't quite do it for uh, me in terms of really painting that picture. But System Shock uh, was, uh, you know, a tremendous advance in terms of what we, because I think it was a contemporary of maybe Doom 2. Uh, and so the first person shooter at that point was very bare bones and, you know, mostly A to B kind of shooting. And System Shock drops you into this space station where you are given this kind of complete world to kind of go into. And it's done a lot of stuff that has, I think, informed uh, video games and particularly first-person shooters kind of for the next 15 years. Uh, we were talking right before the, uh, the podcast that 1994, I mean, that's a long time ago. And yet the game is still incredibly vivid in my head in terms of what it felt like to play it and to feel like I was going back to this place where, you know, uh, everybody was dead and somebody was trying to kill me and I was trying kind of to figure out what was going on and, and somehow sort of stay alive. And it was just a very powerful experience for me uh, as a gamer. And then the more I think about it, you know, it did such re- interesting stuff and I was hoping we could talk a little bit about that too. Well, let me throw this at you because I think you, you've touched on part of what makes System Shock work so much better than other games from, from that time, such as uh, you know Doom or Ultima Underworld. That's one that a lot of people remember as being an early sort of immersive 3D world. Um, for, for me, a lot of what makes System Shock so successful is that it has a clear sense that it's uh, a haunted house game and that here's a setting. Uh, the terrible, dire events that made this setting what it is have already occurred and you are working your way through the aftermath. Uh, it, it's sort of up to you to unravel what's happened rather than to be a part of, you know, killing a, an evolving world. Like Ultima Underworld is a dungeon, and there's supposed to be, like, goblins and whatnot still running around in it. But System Shock is an abandoned space station where something terrible has already happened in Shodan, Shodan, Shodan I, I guess that's how you say her name. Yeah, I think so. Should, should, yeah, that'd be right. But she's already done her worst. She's, like, killed everyone, and uh, and it's up to you to just sort of unravel things and deal with this ghost in the machine. Um, so I, well, I, that's, that's a lot of what, what made it work, is that you're coming in after the fact, sort of. Exactly, and that really, um, I think, actually, and I don't know whether this uh, influenced the Looking Glass guys or not. I remember reading an interview where they were talking about how they really felt you couldn't do actual dialogue in a game where you were talking to somebody because the technology just wasn't there. And you can make me make an argument that it's still not there. Uh, but uh, So they thought, you know, by having everything having happened before you got there, you would kind of recreate, uh, build it back up in your mind in terms of what had actually happened. Uh, and this way they could tell a story without you having to actually talk to somebody or be in a situation kind of like Gordon Freeman where you want to talk to somebody and they're just, you know, yes, Gordon, take this crowbar. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I don't want the crowbar. Aren't you curious about what happened in City 17? Uh, yes, actually. Can I ask you about... Okay, Gordon, go over there. Uh, you know, uh, there's no opportunity. And, you know, it, it, it works, and I know that the, the Half-Life guys are confident and, and probably very content with the choices they made. And, you know, it's a lovely game, obviously, and that they've done some wonderful work. But... Um, there's an old game that was a turn-based game that I played on the Commodore 64, so we have to kind of, you, you can do the kind of way back sound effect, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> it was called Wizard's Crown, and it was kind of a D&D &D sort of version, but wasn't quite. And so it was turn-based, you had a kind of a strategic, uh, not a strategic, a tactical view from kind of top-down, and you would go from sort of overland location to overland location, there'd be a dungeon. And what they did in terms of storytelling is... Uh, there were a couple locations where you would see ghosts replaying things that had happened beforehand. Oh. Um, and so, like, there was one area that was a dungeon, and it was kind of like a prison. And so you overhear uh, the ghosts, of course, and all this was happened long before you made it there. But the ghost talking about, oh, yeah, that thief in cell four, you know, uh, he, he didn't have the key on him. Why didn't he have the key on him? I don't know. Maybe he gave it to somebody else. And, of course, you make it to that cell, you find the corpse of the thief, and there in his ribcage, you know, is the key, which he had swallowed, you know. And so it did this storytelling kind of looking backwards, um, and Wizard's Crown was kind of interesting for me because the one strand then kind of goes off into the uh, the gold box D&D games, you know, those SSI games that, you know, there were like nine million of them. Yep. Uh, and uh, I forget where I petered out in them, but, the, you know, lots of them and, and kind of neat. And then there was this little renaissance of kind of homemade ones. There was a guy, I don't know if you know this guy about this guy, Tom Proudfoot uh, did a game called Nahlock, which is like uh, N-A-H-L-A-K or something like that. And then another one called Natuk, where he kind of took that Wizard's Crown thing and kind of homebrew made his own uh, kind of games that kind of matched that same kind of gameplay. And uh, But that was, the Wizard's Crown game was the first time I remember seeing a story told um, that you're coming on at a later date and here are these ghosts kind of reenacting it. And so System Shock gives you these emails and these logs where these people are trying to figure out what's happened to the station. You know, there's this crazy AI. They don't know it yet. Of course, you know that. And so... Um, you're trying to reconstruct kind of what their last days are. And they set up these tableaus in which now you went back, you go back and play the game, and, uh, man, is it pixelated. I mean, in your mind, of course, it's all, you know, perfect <laughs> images. Uh, I actually, before we, uh, when I, we talked earlier in the week, when we were, I knew this was the week, I, I went back and I started to play through System Shock again. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but getting back to the uh, the idea that everybody's dead, right, that thread then goes into System Shock 2, where you get the ghosts, actually, you get genuine ghosts kind of replaying in your HUD where you can see kind of what their last days were like. And then there are some live people in this in that area where you don't interact with them, but you see them on the other side of the glass. You know, you, you see them running down a corridor that you can't quite get to. Uh, and that, of course, happens in Bioshock in a couple areas where, you know, you can't really interact with anybody but you see them kind of on the other side of glass or they're on a balcony looking down on you. Uh, and even Dead Space, you know, again, is kind of, uh, you know, I don't know if they owe the, 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 the ghosts of looking glass any money, but they certainly owe them a, <laughs> a spiritual debt. I mean, I think even, and I didn't get a chance to write this stuff down, but I think the levels in Dead, Shot, uh, Dead Space match. Uh, the, you know, there's a medical level, there's a hydroponics level. Oh, no way. Know, wow, I didn't even think of that. engineering level. Uh, and, and, you know, it's kind of like when you're playing, uh, you know, a... Uh, a platformer, you know, there's always going to be a lava world, there's always going to be a nice <laughs> world, uh, and I think System Shock hit that template, and it's been the same, I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's been the same ever since. 
Now, now, did System Shock? So you mentioned there's the floppy version of System Shock, and then a CD-ROM version. Did the right. were the audio logs actually audio logs? Would they play voices, or were you just reading them? No. Uh, so on the floppy version, there were no voice files, so you were just reading them. I think I read an interview where it may have been Doug Church was saying it was kind of the silent movie version of System Shock, uh, where you're just uh, reading the text. But I think the game where you're actually hearing these guys, who I can only assume are staffers at Looking Glass. I mean, they all sound, you know, uh, like, uh, you know befuddled engineers trying to figure out what's going wrong with their station, uh, which worked for me, actually. I think it, it really made the game uh, feel more intimate because you get the sense that these are not superheroes here. You know, it's not, uh, you know, uh, Brock Sampson trying to figure out, uh, you know, punching the side of the machine or something like that. These are guys saying, you know, what happened to all the engineering suits? Why, why did they all get recalled? Can somebody, you know, put a purchase order in and get me something? Because, you know, we're getting more radiation down here. And it's just this almost conversational tone. And they, the, some of them really imply that there's been earlier conversations that you're not a, a party to. You know, they, uh, they don't always mention the last name of the person they're talking to, you know. Uh, and, and it's done. It's, you get a sense of uh, that these were real people. Uh, or certainly real-sounding people, stuck in this horrible situation. And as it unravels, there are these individual threads that you're kind of decoding of, uh, you know, somebody is, is here in one section, we're going to try to make it over here to get uh, food, and then, you know, you find a corpse with their last log or something like that, and you're like, oh, that didn't work, did it? Um, you know, Kevin, the beauty of that is that it, it it's showing you the place, you have the visuals in your mind, uh, and then it's giving you the, the personal drama that, that predated it rather than trying to create that personal drama with awkward polygonal puppets, you know, and with like these days they'll, they'll, they'll do character models with lip syncing and it's got that uncanny valley quality most of the time. But it's so much more effective, I think, to introduce a place and then have piece this radio drama together in your imagination where all of that stuff is in your head. You know, you talked about remembering uh, system shock and how in real life it's much more pixelated. But your your imagination has 16-time anti-aliasing that is immaculate. Uh, and when you let that human drama play out in your imagination, I, I think it's just so much more powerful. And those system shock guys, they got that. The Bioshock guys get that. Did you by any chance play uh, the last Halo game, ODST? I did not. I've only played the first Halo game. Well, I, I want to mention that because one of the things they did in that game, I think, was, was Bungie not understanding how to do those radio logs. As you're playing ODST, you're moving around an abandoned city, basically, after the fact. It's got a very similar feel. Uh, it's kind of got a, a, a downbeat tone to it. And you uncover uh, the equivalent of the, the radio logs. However, what Bungie did was they took you out of the game by literally playing out a radio drama with different people talking and sound effects in the background. And it, it's really like something you would listen to, you know, on, on the radio. Or it, it's like some ancient, it's literally a radio drama. And there's no real explanation for why you are taking a break to listen to a radio drama other than they want to sort of tell you the story. And rather than plugging neatly into the world you're in, like the audio logs, um, you know, in Bioshock, anytime you hear something, it's because a character sat down with a tape recorder and is speaking into the tape recorder. In Halo ODST, they have this conceit that there's a magical microphone present during interchanges between characters. And there's no explanation for why it's there. It's just they want to play a radio log for you. And I think that misses this idea of, of what makes audio logs work. Uh, is there's a reason this is on tape. 
You know, like you're talking about the befuddled scientists. There's a reason you find it, uh, and it's up to your imagination to put the pieces together. Uh, and I, I love how they did that. Oh, I think, you're, Tom, you're right on about that, because uh, I forget who it was. Uh, it may have been Lars von Trier, um, but it, it was somebody who did, uh, was talking about kind of horror movies, and he was saying that if you look away from the screen, that's when we win, because nothing we can put on the screen <laughs> is going to be as bad as what's in your head. And so if you are you know, got your hands over your eyes, you're, you're peeking, you've got them squinted close, if you're not looking, we got it, because uh, that's, that's perfect. And, uh, you know, th- what they do in System Shock, and I think so effectively, is really they make you complete the, um, the drama. You know, it's your interpretation of what happens between the frames of the comic book, right? It's, it's uh, you know, and you're kind of recreating these last days. And because it's a mystery, uh, and you're not kind of spoon-fed it, uh, you're really uh, engaged in that process of trying to figure out, a, you know, did these guys make it? to engineering? Did they, were they able to get any food? Did they get any little last victories before it all went bad? Uh, and I think having it as all you know, very Hollywood produced, uh, as you say, the, the, the genuine radio drama, I think takes a lot away from the effectiveness because you're just hearing these guys and some of them are angry, some of them are sort of you know, desperate last minutes where you know, they're breaking down the door, but they're not all that way. Some of them are just, you know, I'm kind of, what's going on here? This is weird. Or, yeah, I've got this little itch on my arm. I'm not quite sure what's happening happening here um you know and, and later of course you know you're you turn into a zombie man that's what's happening uh and you know that it, uh, and i think it, to get even more filmy if you will uh you know i think hitchcock had a, a kind of a famous quote about you know um uh, a ticking bomb in a, in a crowded theater is interesting until unless you the audience know that there's a bomb and then everybody else doesn't and then then you've got a good scene Right, because now you're wondering, are they going to figure it out? What's going to happen? And that really, and so you, as the player, have come in after everybody's dead, and you know what's happened, and so they're kind of working it out, and you already know kind of where this is going. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they do a lovely job of, of really drawing you in there, and I think that's one of the things that made me feel so um, engaged by it, uh, in terms of that uh, that sense that you really are completely alone in the game. Now, now, let me ask you about a couple of elements, and I want to see what you think about them. What made Shodan so effective? Why is she so memorable? Oh, well, a, a couple things. Uh, one is, I think, just the performance is great. Uh, you know, I think uh, you've got Terry, um, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Terry Brogius, uh doing Shodan's voice, and uh, her husband, Eric, did, I think, uh, the sound design and I would imagine some of the soundtrack uh, for it. And his his work is, I think, just fantastic. And so you now are they they're, they're Looking Glass folks? Yeah, they're Looking Glass people. And uh, you know what? They even had a band, uh, if you can believe this. <laughs> uh, uh, which is uh, you laugh, but it, it's you know I'm sure Trigger Cut has them all. Uh, when I was in Boston, actually, it was kind of fun because Boston is exactly the sort of place where you can go to a record store and find you know CDs from an obscure band made by uh, video game people. You know, ten years earlier. Earlier. And the music's kind of good, actually. I really liked it. But um, the, the band was called Tribe, if anybody wants to go prowling through the, the record stores of Boston. Uh, but I think that performance is, is really key because they didn't go too far in terms of the weird post-processing stuff. I mean, there's a lot of it in there, uh, but it's still a very recognizably uh, human voice, uh, I think, is one part of it. Uh, another part of it is how personal it is. Uh, this is not a game where there is a mid-boss. 
you know, there are, it's not a structure where you go through a couple acts and, you know, in act one, you, you beat up this guy and then it turns out he's working for this other guy in act two and then act three, it turns out the mastermind is actually your evil stepmother and, and oh no, you know, here, you know, Shodan talks to you within, I think, uh, you know, the first ten minutes of the game, it's sort of like the old, uh, the old man Murray thing of time to create, you know, time to Shodan is pretty short <laughs> in this game and I, I think that really works because then she is this evolving presence throughout the game that is constantly there sort of whispering in your ear and sometimes you are overhearing her conversations you know she talks to like you know cyborg 251 now we have this great plan to poison the peoples of earth or something like that and so you kind of can be a bug on the wall and then she calls you a bug right i mean then she's like insect i can't believe you've blown this up i'm going to get you and um I, I, and but doing it in a much more kind of personal hostile way um I I, it reminds me, in a way, of uh, many years later in The Matrix, the way the agent would refer to human beings, and it was clear that they were less than he was, that this was a completely different kind of organism that had contempt for you. Uh, and I think of Hugo Weaving as the agent in The Matrix, and I think of Shodan's sort of imperiousness in her sense. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, absolutely, that, that sense. Uh, but it also evolves throughout the game, because she initially doesn't know who you are. Uh, and, you know, uh, the first thing you know, I just, uh, I didn't get a chance to replay the whole thing, but one of the first things she says is, who are you? Right. And, uh, you know, she doesn't know who you are because, uh, the memory of what you've done has been, uh, I guess, erased from her memory. So she doesn't know who you are. Uh, and th- if you'll forgive me really geeking out here, this, t- this goes back to Hamlet, right? Because if you remember, you know, the first line in Hamlet is who's there. Or, or who goes there. I think it's actually who's there. And that's the whole point of the play, right? Who is Hamlet? Who is there, right? Uh, and so Shodan's first thing is, who are you? And you as the player determine who you are through your actions through the game. That, that's who you are. Uh, and if you'll forgive me getting even geekier, uh, and I guess this is because I've got my psychiatrist hat on, uh, there's also a parent-child relationship. And I don't know if you were conscious of this when you were playing, because I wasn't until I was kind of thinking about this uh, maybe a couple of years ago. But Shodan is your daughter. Because in the first seconds of the game, this wonderful looking glass opening, right? I mean, it's, you know, I don't even know if it's a minute and a half. And you start hacking, you get busted by the guys from, uh, what was that wonderful uh, top-down shooter? Uh, They had the same armor. Ah, rats, I'm blanking on the name. But then you get whisked off to the space station and, uh, you know, offered a deal. You disable the ethical constraints on the AI, we forget about your crime, and we give you this military-grade neural interface. And, of course, you you say yes. Uh, And then Shodan basically comes to life. You created her. You made it possible for her to do this. And you wake up, and everybody's dead. And it's your fault. You didn't do it intentionally. This was not some master plan. This was an accident. Uh, And you were, in a way, maybe trapped, and you couldn't do anything else. But she's your daughter. You created her. And now she hates you. Hey, you talk about, you bring up Hamlet, and that's good, but I think of, of, uh, of Oedipus. You know, the mystery is, uh, you know, the, all, the, the curse and everything is something that he has done, uh, and he doesn't know that. It's something that he has to find out. Uh, is that this desire, you know, this disaster that's befallen the city is his responsibility. And it's the same with the hacker in Shodan. Very nice, Kevin. Very nice. Yeah, you, you see that in a couple of movies, and I, I guess that would be spoilers for them, so maybe we shouldn't go there. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's exactly it. And I, I think that moral dimension, because most times where you are there to save the universe, it's not your fault. 
you know, you're a space marine trapped in a station, you know, who know there were demons there or, uh, you know, oh, my God, aliens. Uh, you're kind of a hapless bystander or somebody sent in to do a job, uh, but you're not the guy who, who did this. Uh, you know, it, it's like uh, as if you were playing a, a game where you were the one who caused the genocide, you know, all these years ago, and now you have to somehow try to make it right. Uh, so I, uh, and I think that parent-child thing actually, again, we see in System Shock, and then it follows through the remainder of the games in the series, right? Because um, I'm not sure I can really stretch it to System Shock 2, to be honest with you, but in Bioshock, obviously, you've got a parent-child relationship. You've got a couple of them in that one, and I think it really informs, uh, you know, what they're doing. And I, I don't know this to be true, but I wonder if the guys at Irrational who were doing Bioshock had grown up in the intervening time and they also had kids. Because some of the things with the Little Sisters, um, you know, the way that pulls at you when you're playing the game, I don't know if you sacrificed them. Uh, I just couldn't do it. Uh, now, I've got kids, so, of course, you know, I'm a big softie. But uh, I, I think that resonance is just more uh, because of, uh, you know, what I imagine is the, you know, that the guys designing the games, the guys writing the games now have kids. And then, again, you see that in Bioshock 2, right? You've still got the Little Sisters, and then there's that big sister relationship, and there's all this stuff going on between parents and children. So you have played Bioshock 2, then? I have, yes. Okay, because I, I think that, that just right there is the culmination of what you're talking about. Uh, the, the whole way that you are sort of determining what happens to Eleanor, like what kind of character Eleanor evolves into in, in Bioshock 2. Uh, that, that's just, to me, the perfect expression of this, this idea that, that you're talking about. Um, where yeah, right. In System Shock, you're, you're, you're frozen. it's frozen in time. You've done it. It's happened, you know, and now you're just trying to clean up the mess. Uh, and that, I think, gets back to why that's such a powerful moment. Uh, you know, there's another uh, parent-child kind of thing similar to this in Mass Effect 2, and I don't know if you actually played through that character's uh, side stream, but there's a parent dealing with a, uh, a very, very <laughs> That was all child. of them. That was all uh, of them. Kevin, they all had parents. <laughs> all of the side quests. Or, you know, help I, me with my dad. <laughs> well, you're of course right, Ed. Uh, I was thinking of one in particular, and how completely hollow that one felt to me. You know, uh, there's one involving the Justicar that just... Ah, it didn't move me in the slightest. And yet, the idea in Showdown that, you, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to kill your daughter because this is what she's done, and she's going to wipe out everything if you don't stop her. Um, and yeah, that, too, I've, is such a... You, you mentioned how, how Showdown is apparent early on, and she's constantly whispering in your ear. That approach, I think, is so much easier to make a compelling character than something like Mass Effect 2, where they want to have all these different storylines and then tie them to some baddie at the end. Um, to me, it's just so much easier to, to create this dramatic situation when there's someone constantly there throughout the game and there's this constant pressure, whether it's uh, what's her, uh, Sophie, I can't think of the woman's name now in Bioshock 2, or whether it's Shodan. Uh, you, you know, you need in a game a consistent, constant either narrator or villain, uh, and, and Shodan was a perfect expression of that. You know, here's who you're going to be dealing with, and she's with you all along. She's, she's never going to leave your side. You're never going to lose sight of the fact that this is what the game is about. Right. Are you a Bergman fan by any chance? I bet you are. I don't know that to be true. I know so little Bergman. I, I've only seen, I guess, Virgin Spring and uh, the the, uh, uh, the Death with Chess thing. What, what the heck is that one? Why can't I think oh, of Oh, yeah, you're thinking of the Seventh Seal. Seventh Seal, right, right, right. So, no, I'm not a Bergman fan in that I don't know a lot of Bergman. What, what made you think of that? I've got to know now. Uh, 
Well, uh, I, I hate to add more things to your Netflix queue, because you still haven't seen The Wire, have you? Uh, I have not. I've got 66 <laughs> hours ahead of me. <laughs> oh, God. Um, there's, you know, you probably know, uh, what's his name, Borges. He's got a, uh, you know, South, uh, I think he's an Argentinian writer, and one of his poems is about turning 50 and realizing that there are books on his library that he's just never going to read. Mm-hmm. And I think when you get a Netflix queue that's in, like, the 400s, <laughs> on some level, you're lying to yourself that you're ever going to see number 422 and 423. It's just not going to happen. You know what? Uh, I, give me a Bergman film because I loved Virgin Spring. I was just so delighted by how well it held up. What should I put in and bump to the top of my uh, queue that you're thinking of? Uh, you got to see Fanny and Alexander. All right. That's uh, all you got to say. Well, actually, tell me why I got to see it without spoiling it. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, but there is there also there's a lot of parent-child relationships. And one of the things the movie does is gets it to a sense of how even long after uh, that particular relationship has ended or changed or whatever has happened, what you do as a parent uh, sticks with the child. And as the child, that experience stays with you, you know, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, again, you'll forgive the psychiatrist had uh, it. If I get too geeky on this, please pull me back. But uh, there's this guy, Eric Erickson, who was a psychoanalyst in the like, 1950s and 60s. And he had this idea uh, that there were these constant, um, that there was maybe eight stages of development that people would have to go through as part of normal, healthy development. And the first development was uh, trust versus mistrust. And this happens like in the first 18 months of a child's life. And it's basically, are your parents or the people who are taking care of you, are they feeding you when you're hungry? Are they changing your diaper when you need it changed? Are they picking up and giving you a hug when you need a hug? And it, they don't have to be perfect, but it just are they there enough that you get that the sense that the universe is a place where you can trust people and your needs are going to get taken care of? And if that happens, you got that for the end of your life. If you don't have it, you know, and I say this because uh, in my own professional life, I work with people who didn't get it and have had terrible childhoods, and they struggle in their, even in their 60s and 70s, with this difficulty uh, in terms of relating or connecting that goes all the way back to those early kind of childhood moments. And uh, again, I think that parent-child bond is so strong uh, within these games, and I think it's actually a very hopeful sign that the games are starting to address some of these more human kind of conflicts and emotions rather than, oh my God, the aliens nuked New York, now we're going to kick their ass. Right. I, I would say that's, to me, one of the most single exciting things about being into video gaming these days is seeing people struggle with these kinds of ideas and express them in games. And even though it's still sort of few and far between, I, I just so love seeing that kind of stuff in video games. So, Absolutely. Let me, let me ask you about some gameplay things uh, about Absolutely. System Shock. Uh, I don't remember this, but did System Shock 1, and I don't think it did, did it have the degrading weapon concept that drove System Shock 2? That <laughs> not only drove System Shock 2, but drove everybody crazy. But see, I, I love that, and I'll, I'll explain. Was that in System Shock 1 or no? You know, it is not. Uh, There are some elements of things that show up in System Shock 2. Monsters will respawn, and they can respawn right behind you in a room you already cleared with no, like, they magically appear. There's no Uh, in-game explanation for it? Does Shodan have, like, a replicator thing that can keep monsters in? On some levels, there actually are. Like, on one level, you can shut down uh, the robot uh, repair facility, and no more robots will spawn on that level. (laughs) So on a couple levels, there actually is an in-game explanation. But, you know, as to why the mutants keep popping up on the medical level, I don't think there is. Uh, and maybe somebody's going to post on the forum that there's this log somewhere that I missed that talks about it, in which case I'd love to hear about it. Um, so I'm sorry, you were saying. So no, there were no uh, weapon degrading bits. What uh, were there? There were upgradable skills, right? Was there like an RPG system? No. 
No. No skills. Come on. No, what, you, what you had was uh, implants that would upgrade some of your abilities. Uh, so you get a, an auto map uh, after you find the auto map implant. There's a, uh, a targeting implant that tells you whether you've actually hit something or not. Oh, it's I really not always clear with the little pixels what's going on. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it, it throws a little hit there. Uh, there's other implants that will tell you the exact percentage of your health, or there's one really cool thing, and I don't know that anybody has uh, done this since. Uh, you get an implant that actually looks behind you, and so it adds the equivalent of a rear view <laughs> to your HUD that updates like four frames a minute or not no, faster than that but it's clearly updating do you know what i mean it's not running at the same number of frames as the game uh so you can actually because you've got this neural interface you can then see behind you of course it costs energy so you have to kind of balance out you know do i don't want to spend the energy to make sure nothing sneaks up behind me or uh you're, you're trading that off but all of them are kind of things you plug in there are no skill points there's no uh stuff to level up and if you find a weapon in the game you can use it right away you don't need to have skill in it you don't need to have a psionic amplifier or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, did it have a game pig, or is that only in System Shock 2? There, is, there are games as part of your HUD, and there's even a little Wing Commander clone in there, which... Uh, God bless these guys. I mean, how they pulled that off. Uh, it even starts with, uh, like, a little cutscene, and it's an incredibly brief, like, 30-frame cutscene, <laughs> but, but saying, uh, take so-and-so as your wingman, and then, you know, you're dropped in this little environment, and you're in the middle of this dead station with, you know, all these horrible things haunting it, and there you are with the little Game Boy shooting <laughs> down the little spaceships. And it's kind of neat because it's this little break from, uh, you know, all the horror that surrounds you. I, I love I that, too, as a commentary on video gamers. You, you know, <laughs> this is something we enjoy doing. No matter what else is going on, this is our hobby, uh, a way to sort of shut out the world and enjoy a little diversion. And, and even there's this sense of, like, nested dolls. Even your character within a game does that. Exactly. <laughs> and, and there's even a little blurb saying, don't play these games on company time. Uh, you know, in the game fiction, you know, it's Trioptimum Corporation is telling you, you as a Trioptimum employee, don't play this game on, ga on, on company time. Now, what, what is the station called? Is it Citadel Station? or did Yeah. Well, what's the station in Mass Effect? Isn't that Citadel Station also? I think the Mass Effect gets an article. It is the Citadel. Citadel. Oh, good no, point. This You're is very... Citadel Station. But, right. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure the Mass Effect guys played System Shock, so... <laughs> You know, call it an homage, right? I mean, it's a, you know, it's a little nod. It's like, uh, you know, in Blade Runner, there's a Bradbury Theater. You know, uh, you know that, that's why it's there. Right. Now, uh, so you, you installed it from the CD-ROM? Can you just, like, install no. the... No. Uh, well, uh, yes, you can. Uh, but there has also been released, uh, it, uh, there's this website, Through the Looking Glass, uh, mm -hmm. which is, I think, like TTLG. And these guys, these guys are kind of awesome. I mean, you know, Looking Glass is long gone, and they are still carrying the torch and coordinating people, doing new thief levels. And it's, it's just amazing the stuff they're doing. I wish I had the time to play through some of this stuff. Uh, but they, some guys there have made up, and there was a couple threads on Quarter to Three uh, about what they called System Shock Portable, which is the complete CD-ROM version of System Shop that you can install onto a thumb drive and uh, then just plug it into any computer and it runs. It doesn't need to install. It's got DOSBox already programmed in, so I was playing it on Vista actually this week. And some guy has even uh, mapped in a way to do um, Mouse Look, which wasn't oh, in that's System right. Shop. Uh, which I did not remember at all and was really profoundly uh, startling because I didn't remember. I, you know, I just assumed it had mouse look. And, and in my memories, of course, it does have mouse look. Uh, but it turns out you had to do the interface was um, 
incredibly arcane. You had to uh, click with, I think, the right mouse button at the edges of the screen in order to turn your view that way. Oh, my God. While WASD just moves you kind of, you know, orthogonally, uh, you know, forward, back, left, right. And so you can get into these awful situations where, you know, something's wailing on you from behind, (laughs) and you're trying to turn around and switch weapons, and you're figuring out what's going on, and, uh, you know, it's incredibly awkward. Uh, The mouse look helps with a lot of that. Though I've ended up playing, you know, I, I have to tell you, I put in maybe four or five hours into this and I'm playing it as God designed it, uh, you know, with this, um, you know, I, I guess I'm a fundamentalist system shocker. Uh, you know, this is how, you know, God wrote the Bible in English, and, uh, you know, that's what I'm reading it in, and uh, nobody can tell me any different. Now, I'm saying this, of course, to a man who's uh, been through divinity school, so I, I hope I haven't conjured up any horrible memories for you. <laughs> no, the only horrible memories are probably getting wailed on in system shock because I couldn't turn around fast enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, why can't I move? Uh, right, right, nice. <laughs> It's wonderful. Uh, so uh, a lot of that stuff, like the interface itself, is arcane to, to be on belief. It's it's almost World of Warcrafty in terms of you've got so many buttons ringing the screen. Uh, you know, there's buttons on the right side of the screen. There's buttons on the left side of the screen. Uh, there's like a compass up at the top. And then at the bottom, you've got like three multifunction displays that you can actually customize a little bit. So if you want your weapon to be on the right, you want the auto map on the left, you can kind of move between that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that part, I think it's nice that games have not imitated, uh, uh, you know, this, this particular interface because everything's gotten, you know, uh, when you look at dead space in terms of how they handled that, I mean, that was just beautiful. Right, right. Now, doesn't, doesn't System Shock also have that, that cyberspace conceit? Yes, it does. Now, how did that work? Uh, well, did you read Neuromancer? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay, so, uh, you know, that, that, that was there, and they, you know, they even mentioned some of the same terms. You know, they use ice to describe, uh, you know, the firewall kind of stuff that keeps you from getting to places. Uh, and so it's all like a, um, like a vector graphics kind of thing, like the old Battlezone game, in the sense that they're all boxes, and it's got a couple sprites representing the, uh, the various monsters that you're fighting in cyberspace that are, you know, supposedly attack programs or something like this. And so you can jack into cyberspace at particular points in a level, and then you have to go through a kind of a separate obstacle course that has some real-world implications. So uh, the counterterrorism people who are helping you from the outside are leaving little things in cyberspace, little notes there that they hope Shodan won't find that kind of tell you about the levels or, or objectives. And there's also switches you can throw there that will then, you know, open the door to the armory or something like that. Mm-hmm. And is and it, it's awful. <laughs> it's it, awful. Is it awful? Like, you're saying that, but I just remember, again, in my, in my memory, that was awesome because it was such a cool conceit. But it, it's, it's, it's just awful, is it? Oh, it's a brilliant idea. And at the time, I thought it was amazingly cool. But now playing the game with 40-year-old reflexes... Um, <laughs> You know, I cannot steer in cyberspace to save my life. And so uh, this gets back actually to another innovation, and I hope you'll forgive the tangent. System Shock was one of the first and maybe one of the – it may have been the first game to actually let you play it the way you want to play it. Because the first thing you get to do in the game is you pick the difficulty level, and it's not one difficulty level. There's actually three or four separate ways – do you like puzzles? Then you can choose uh, puzzle difficulty from oh. three or four different puzzle difficulties. So the puzzles you come across will either be, they'll either auto-solve at the lowest level. You click on it and, oh, the puzzle's solved. Great. Or they'll be incredibly challenging and you'll be like, hmm, no, I move this over here and this over here. No, and let me draw this out on graph paper. You know, uh, and then there's combat. There, you can have a similar spectrum, you know, lots of shooting, hardly any shooting. And then there's one for cyberspace, which I have to confess I dialed down all the way to zero for this playthrough. Um, <laughs> 
where, you know, you can make it as challenging or as easy as you want in terms of how many kind of hit points you have in cyberspace and how uh, much time you have, because the cyberspace segments actually had a time limit. So when you went in, you could only stay jacked in for so long. And so there was that pressure. And then this wonderful mode, which I never was able to do, and I I think I'm going to come to terms with the fact that I never will do this. You could set a timer on the game, so you had like seven hours to play from start to finish. Whoa. Uh, Or else you would lose? Or you'd lose. The station blows up or Shodan destroys the world. Something happens. I, I don't know. But that, uh, I guess that was the master class level. You know, when you know every nook and cranny of it, and it almost anticipates the speed runs yeah. that you now see on YouTube where, you know, uh, somebody plays through Demon Souls in 38 seconds or something like that. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's great that they let you toggle that on. I mean, that's kind yeah, of be playability. I would love to see this because uh, as I get older, um, and occasionally, you know, I'll see people who start to get movement disorders, uh, you know, like Parkinson's and that kind of stuff. And I have this fantasy that I'm still going to be wanting to play video games when I'm 80, which maybe I won't, but, uh, you know, hopefully I will. Uh, And I think it would be wonderful so that you can have separate difficulty levels. So if you really like puzzles, you can have kind of challenging puzzles. Or if you really like the shooting, you can kind of dial that up rather than having to look at the menu and think, gosh, do I I pick, uh, you know, where do I fall in this? Right, Uh, right. Uh, so I love that they let you kind of customize what you like. So if you hate cyberspace, which, um, you know, I'm sorry, Looking Glass guys, uh, you know, it, it, you can dial that down to zero, and then it, it's no longer a chore. It no longer is annoying. Um, and I, I think that's wonderful, and not a lot of games have to, That's one innovation that I don't think prospered. I don't think that really made it downstream into other games. I think what games tend to do these days, Kevin, is they'll have, and this is what the case with, uh, with Bioshock, is they will do an auto-adjusting under the hood. You know, in Bioshock, they're, and it's very sneaky, and I hate knowing that it's there because I'm very aware of it now, but so often in Bioshock, the hit that kills you will just leave you with a couple of pixels of health. And then when you're scrounging, if it sees that you need certain ammo or certain, or you're low on med kits, like it'll adjust dynamically. Uh, so I think a lot of games do that and, and kind of trick you into... Uh, into the difficulty level. They just leave you surfing this fine point between losing and winning. And so somebody points that out to you, and that's in your head the whole time you're playing it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think that's tough because System Shock is actually an incredibly challenging game to play, and yet it gives you this lovely mastery curve where you come onto a level, everything is hostile against you, and then you gradually shape the environment to become your friend or at least to become controlled. So you you shut down the cameras, you shut down the computer nodes, and then uh, you can repurpose the resurrection system that uh, will automatically heal you if you get killed. If you get to a certain point in most of the levels, you can throw a switch, and instead of turning you into a cyborg, it'll actually resurrect you in the mm. normal way that it's supposed to. Uh, similarly, you know, you'll find power stations that will let you recharge your uh, electric uh, power stuff. Um, I don't know if it's actually electricity in the game, but uh, and so you gradually reshape the environment to become your friend or your ally, and so it, it's this lovely power curve for the gamer that you start off feeling completely helpless and outgunned, and eventually, you know, uh, the prey becomes the predator, and you, you know, Shodan is uh, impossible to stop at the beginning, and towards the end, she almost gets panicked, you know, why haven't I been able to kill you? Uh, and I think it's a wonderful experience as a gamer in terms of giving you this sense of, of power and mastery uh, over your environment. Right. Uh, and when there's a thumb on the scale, kind of adjusting it so that, uh, you know, like you're playing with Dungeons and Dragons with your friend who's never going to kill your character. <laughs> right. Uh, which I understand is not what you should do when you're playing with Dean. I think he's, he's pretty tough. Um, 
<laughs> you know, then it loses a little of the thrill because then you know you can do stupid stuff and you're not going to die. Right. Whereas you're playing without a net in System Shock. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but you can blow up the Earth relatively early. Oh, that's on in right. The There's a you get a chance to just fire off a big old like space laser or something, right? Right. And they play fair. Like by the time you get there, you have come across a couple logs where people talk about the laser, talk about well, we could fire it, but we don't know what it's pointed at, so that's not going to work. <laughs> we have to do something with the shields. But then you're in the room, it's laser override control. There's a big old button on the wall and you think Maybe I should push this thing. Does it and end then, the game? Uh, is the game over? Yeah, it does. It's, ga- it's game over. And Shodan sends me this lovely message of, of thank you for wiping out all of human civilization. Uh, you know, please stay where you are. Uh, we'll be inviting you to join the party shortly. Uh, it, it's it's really uh, quite powerful. That that really puts the uh, the nuclear bomb you can set off in Fallout Three in perspective. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and they just the, the wonderful thing is is uh, the game gives you this powerful sense of aloneness because I think there's a real difference between what happens in System Shock versus System Shock 2 and most other games where you start the game and there's somebody yelling at you. Quick! The spaceship's going to blow up! Run over here! Press Q to open your inventory! Tutorial Uh, level! Exactly. And in System Shock, it starts off a little bit like that. You find a note from yourself saying kind of what the rough scenario is, and then you get a, a message. There's, uh, if you will, it's so, System Shock's a three-person play. It's got you, it's got Shodan, and it's got this lady kind of outside uh, the system who is kind of feeding you help, you know, uh, telling you uh, what's happening on Earth and, and giving you kind of these hints to go along. And she's kind of your only friend, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's wonderful about the game is it takes her away from you. And it does it, uh, I, I apparently it does it twice, actually, and I only remembered once. But for me, that was, uh, I have to tell you, it, Tom, it's the single most powerful moment I've had in gaming. Because here I am on this a lonely station. Everybody's dead. It's all my fault. And, so, you know, I've got one friend, you know, this Rebecca Lansing is sending me these little emails of, like, you know, here's what you've got to do. Shodan's out of control. Here's what you need to do to shut it down. And in a, the middle of an email where she's telling you something incredibly important, Shodan comes on cuts off the transmission and says I, something like, I prefer a quiet station, thank you. And you're suddenly, and then you're alone for like a level and a half. And you, you know, where'd this lady go? You're only wow. of the world, and now she's gone. And I wish more games would do this, not in terms of you get hit on the head and you wake up in jail and you've taken away all your weapons. Like, I could do without that till the end of gaming days. Do you know what I mean? Like, once you've given me the machine gun, please, let me keep the machine gun. Um... But this idea that there's this paradigm that they establish, you know, you accomplish a goal, you get an email that tells you what you do next and gives you more information about the system or about the setup or about what's going on. And then they take it away in game, in the fiction, and then you're, you're, you suddenly have this absence where, you know, uh, if you start the game alone and you stay alone for the whole game, that isn't as effective as you start the game with one friend in the whole world and now she's gone. Uh, And that just cemented that sense of, man, I really am in this little tin can floating around, I think it was Saturn, uh, and there's nobody else here except for, you know, this AI who's whispering in my ear. She really wants to kill me. Like, uh, there's this Harlan Ellison uh, short story, I Have No Mouth But I Must Scream or something along these lines. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's about the last guy on Earth, and uh, there's an AI, uh, and it is there to torture him. That's what it does. It hates all humanity, hates people for creating it. It's killed off everybody else, but it's kept one fly to keep pulling the wings off of. And I, I think there's a little bit of that in terms of System Shock, that sense that you know, you're, you're the only worshiper of a very, very angry god. Now, does System Shock end with a boss battle? Do you, do you remember? Mm-hmm. It does. Is it a terrible boss battle? It is. It's in cyberspace. 
And oh, ouch. <laughs> Your favorite part. <laughs> uh, my favorite part. And I don't know how I passed it the first time. I really, you know, because I think there are people posting on Usenet about how the heck do you get past this thing? This is awful. And it's it just, it's really challenging. And I think, you know, somebody with better hand-eye coordination than I did may sail right through it. And I think I just managed to get lucky somehow because it's, uh, I think I tried to do it again uh, maybe five years later when I was playing through it. And I just, I couldn't do it. Right. Uh so, yeah, it's a little anticlimactic in, in that regard. Yet, uh, the climax of every time you defeat Shodan, there is this rising tension because you keep foiling her plans, and she keeps up in the ante. And uh, that, you know, the, the arc up to that point is really great. Right. Now, uh, Kevin, I am about to have to run, but before I go, I want to ask you a random question. By the way, uh, we're about to have Shoot Club tonight. Why don't you come over and join us? Oh, it would. I, if I could, if you, if I was in Los Angeles, I'd be there. All right, just, just consider it. You know, I'm sure your daughters would love the school system out here. It's wonderful. I'm being completely facetious, but <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, before folks start getting here, I want to ask you a completely random question that has nothing to do with anything that we've talked about. Fire away. Okay. And living in Maine, I'm curious what you have to say about this. Ready? I'm ready. Well, actually, I'm not. But, you know, I was reading that, uh, that thread about, uh, you know, what are interesting questions I should ask people. And I'm looking through this, and I'm thinking, oh, my God. I yeah, just for folks listening, you're not getting any of those. Those were simply <laughs> one of the contest things. I, there were some cool things in there, but uh, I've got plenty. That was just a ruse, uh, another ruse for, uh, for the contest. So for this contest, this will be a thread and everything else. I'm going to throw this at you first, Kevin. Here we go. What was your last run-in with the police? Oh, uh, you know, it was actually on our, uh, it was in Maine here, and it was uh, on our honeymoon. And we were uh, staying outside of, I think, Eastport. Uh, and so we were going to drive, re- get up really early in the morning and drive to the, the lighthouse there and watch the sun rise at the easternmost point in the United States. Uh, you know, very romantic. Well, of course I overslept. And so it's still dark out there. We can still make it. And so we're driving in this rented car with, uh, I think, New Jersey or Philadelphia plates uh, through uh, a Native American reservation uh, uh, to get to the lighthouse. And, of course, uh, you know, we're driving past, and I see a police car parked by a, a bridge, and, uh, you know, we just go right past him. And, uh, you know, sure enough, the lights come on. He pulls us over. He's looking at the license, and he's like, so uh, did you see me there by the bridge? And, and I said, well, yeah. And he's like, what do you think I was doing there? And I said, uh, I thought you were maybe fishing. Oh, you and did not say that. <laughs> I did. And he, he gives me this look like, is this, in fact, the stupidest guy I've ever encountered? And I think he decided, yeah, yeah, yeah he is. And so, because I, I think if I was trying to pull anything, I, I don't think I could have said something stupider than that. And so the guy ends up giving us a warning and, and lets us go off. He's like, so why are you driving in such a hurry? Well, we're trying to see the, the sunrise over here. What? Well, we're on our honeymoon, and, you know, my wife's there uh, kind of just looking at me thinking, oh, my God, what is he doing? You played the honeymoon uh, card, though. Come on. Well, and it worked. You know, the guy said, you know, uh, I'm not going to give you a ticket. And, and that was the, the that was the last, uh, I think that was the last. Oh, you know, I, I think the more recent time I was trying to film something, and you may resonate with this, uh, for one of these little documentary things, I was trying to get some footage of cars driving to kind of illustrate a, a point on uh, one of the freeways outside of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. and. You can't pull over unless your car is broken, right? Uh, like, that's, you're not supposed to do that. So I, I pulled over, and my uh, camera assistant was setting up uh, the camera on the tripod, and sure enough, you know, a state trooper comes by, and he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, well, I, I'm making this documentary, and he's like, 
you can't do that. And I was like, well, uh, you can't do that. So, um, again, uh, it was such a goofball story. And we had, you know, the, the film camera there. And I guess we must have looked pretty darn clueless as kind of film graduate students. And so, you know, they let us go. And we, we drove off. And my camera system's like, I can't believe you didn't get a ticket for that. That really well, was pretty stupid. That's another thing, like, Kevin. It's, it's not just the whole traffic thing, but you can't just, especially in L.A., you can't just whip out a camera and start filming. You know, there's all these people down here who want to do little indie movies. And I've certainly been on this end of it. And you can't just, like, run around with a camera and shoot stuff. You know, that that's business in California and especially L.A. Uh, you, you know, you need your permits. You can't just whip out your camera and start shooting a movie. What are you thinking? <laughs> Clearly, I had a lot to learn. <laughs> Well, uh, okay. Well, I, I, that's you have. Oh, but been... what's Tom? What's the lexical trick? How do people know that this is, you know, the actual answer? Right. So when you <laughs> post game, when I don't hear one of these, right. I always try to figure out what the rule is, and I never get it right. Okay. I never get it right. Well, I think this one will be tough to figure out. So, so to post in this thread about your last run-in with the police, uh, post an answer. By the way, that's also a criteria for going into the drawing. You don't just post something in the thread. You have to actually answer the question for folks wondering, because we get, we get lots of people who talk about things in these threads, and that's fine. I encourage that. But to go into the drawing, you have to actually answer the question and follow the rule. So the rule this time is when you answer the question, what was your last run-in with the police, you cannot use the words police, cop, or officer. You must answer the question without using any three of those words, if you do that, you go into the drawing. Um, and uh, for folks listening, uh, uh, my last run-in with the police is, is, I think, about as dramatic as yours in that I just got pulled over for running a stoplight and I got a warning, but it, a stop sign. Uh, and it wasn't, I wasn't on my honeymoon or anything like that. I guess I just looked clueless and he, he gave me. Actually, the odd thing, now that I'm remembering, Kevin, he asked me if I lived around here. Uh and, and I said, yes, I live right up the hill because it was right down from my house. And he said something like, well, in our own neighborhoods, we often run stop signs. Just don't do it again. And he let me go with a warning wow. as if if I had driven a long way and wasn't in my neighborhood, he was going to give me a ticket. Because clearly you would have been up to no good at that point. Right. <laughs> hey, you know, one quick last thing. I forgot to tell you about this stuff. I, I had something, a, a kind of a goofball thing that I did with Looking Glass. Oh, that's right. I have it in my notes. A... That's right. I have in my notes. Ask about embarrassing anecdote. So, you know, uh, here's, here's what, a, what a fan person I, I, I was. Uh, and I'm going to say fanboy because it's, it's totally accurate. Uh, when Looking Glass was closing down, uh, you know, they posted, I think, uh, to uh, one of the Usenet groups, uh, one of the guys, uh, I forget whether it was maybe Mark LeBlanc or uh, Rob Fermier, one of, one of them posted saying, you know, well, Wednesday's our last day. Tomorrow we're going to come back in on Thursday. We're going to pick up all our stuff and we're going to go home. And so... Uh, I ended up sending to their address uh, for the last day. I sent them like four cases of beer. Um, <laughs> so I called this beer distributor in like Lexington and you know said, "Look, can you send these four cases of beer to this company? They're closing down. Here's my credit card. They wanted me to fax a copy of my driver's license to prove I got." That is so cool of well. you. Well, that is an awesome uh, thing to do, Kevin. Well, I had to explain it to my wife. Uh, you did what? You sent <laughs> four cases of beer to these guys in Boston, and. <laughs> 
and what was lovely about her, and it was really great, she's like, you know, you really did love those games, and, and I, I, you're going to miss the, these guys, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. So uh, th- that was kind of the one, uh, th- that was as far as my fandom went, was, uh, you know, sending them a couple cases of beer, and I, you know, uh, that, that was, uh, there are even a couple pictures somewhere on the internet. I remember at the time, like, one of the guys had some last days of looking glass kind of photos up, and they, I saw them drinking the beer, and I thought, okay, you know, maybe that's a little something I can do. That's not an embarrassing anecdote. That's an awesome thing. That is so cool of you. Uh, I have made jokes. There was a game that came out in, I think, 2001 called Sacrifice, which I just loved that game. Oh, Sacrifice was great. Sacrifice was phenomenal, and I used to make jokes about uh, going down to Shiny's offices and washing all of their cars. Uh, and, and in my head, like, I never thought I would do that, but I always had a picture in the back of my head about, you know, wouldn't it be cool if I actually went down there and did that to these guys as an expression of gratitude? But you're the guy who actually did that thing. You know, you always say, I'll buy you a beer. I like your game so much. And you actually did that, Kevin. Good for you. What kind of beer, by the way? Uh, it was Sam Adams, actually. Okay. Uh, I think, like, uh, Summer Brew and, like, uh, one or two of the other uh, sort of just regular old Sam Adams. Was it, like, Bud Light or something like that? No, no, no. Hey, come on. Look at us, man. <laughs> These guys deserve good beer. Um, <laughs> you know, and I was on this little church mouse salary at the University of Pennsylvania, so, you know, I really had to explain to my wife where all this money came from. Oh, that's even uh, all the better then that you did it. Wow. That's, you're you're good was, people, Kevin. Awesome. You're good people. <laughs> well, Kevin, anyway, thanks. When I'm in L.A., uh-huh. you'll, you can get me a beer. I will get you a beer in L.A. And, and, Kevin, I will wash your car. Oh, wow. <laughs> you got this whole concierge thing going. You're mowing lawns for one guy. You're washing somebody else's car. It's, I'll make um... you a coffee, too. How about that? Oh, wow. That, that, that's living. <laughs> well, Kevin, thanks for hanging out. I really appreciated it. Uh, I, I could talk to you for hours. So come on out to Shoot Club tonight, and we'll hang out some more. <laughs> Sounds great, Tom. Thanks. This was a real pleasure. Uh, everyone listening, post what was your last run-in with the police. Do not use the words police, cop, or officer. Next week on the podcast, we will have no one because it's E3. So we're taking a week off, but I will be back after that uh, with, I don't know who's next, but we're, we're taking a week off so that I can go look at all these dog and pony shows for uh, new games. Uh, and I'll see everyone back here in two weeks. Uh, Kevin, I will be seeing you around on the forum. And uh, say hi to your daughters for me. They sound really Oh, cool. absolutely well. All right. Take care, Kevin. See you, Tom.